Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, listeners are aware of the no less destructive for being baseless assault on critical race theory. Just like with affirmative action, where conservatives said steps toward racial equity really means unfair quotas, media took this charge. Steps toward racial equity really means telling white children to hate themselves and turned it into something some people are saying. While, of course, out of fairness, they'll acknowledge others disagree. Media themselves, they suggest, occupy the intellectually and morally superior center. A new website engages the attack more productively by using critical race theory as a prism to explore the current range of threats to our multiracial democracy and our ability to talk about it. The site's called The Forum. We'll talk with editor-in-chief Chris Lehman. Also on the show, between Rupert Murdoch and Elon Musk, who would you prefer preside over what information you can access? It's kind of like being offered a choice between a poke in one eye or the other. If the problem is media outlets with priorities that poorly serve even our aspirations for democracy, and that is the problem, the response is media with different priorities, which we know really only come from having a different bottom line. How can that work? We'll talk about one model with Mike Rispoli of the group Free Press. He's been working with the New Jersey Civic Information Consortium, a new way of thinking about and meeting local communities' need for news. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. There is a lot to do to resist the imminent Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. There's a lot to do, and what we do will depend on what we really stand for and how we talk about it. How not to do that is reflected in The Guardian, whose May 4th story made the potential abrogation of a fundamental human right a story about media. New peak in culture wars. Global media react to Roe v. Wade leak. The prospect of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, Guardian readers were told, has, quote, dominated front pages across the world, with the global media reporting in detail on one of the most polarizing issues in American politics, close quote. Well, the one thing posing as news amidst that reflexive self-regard is wrong. Abortion is not one of the most polarizing issues in this country. A survey from last week shows 7 in 10 people think it's a decision for the childbearing person and their doctor, versus 24 percent who think it should be regulated by law. As for a federal ban, there is no state in the country in which such a thing garners more than 30 percent support among the general public. But it's easy to see why you'd be confused on that if all you read is headlines, or worse, headlines about headlines. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The concerted attack on critical race theory is one of the most appalling called shots in recent memory. 
Right-wing activist Christopher Rufo declared publicly, quote, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans, close quote. In the newspaper is not a metaphor here. Media have been the vehicle for this absurd anti-anti-racism campaign, which has achieved devastating traction in a country in which overwhelming majorities, 76 percent in a recent poll, acknowledge racial and ethnic discrimination as a big, not a past or historic, but a big problem. Right-wingers know they can play a press corps that will seek to normalize whatever they do as representing one poll of a debate they can pretend they're hosting, even as those actions threaten core democratic ideas. All of which makes corporate media the wrong place to talk about the assault on critical race theory and all that it's really about. Into the Breach is a new website primed for launch. The Forum is a daily site of news and commentary published by the African American Policy Forum. AAPF, where I serve as a board member, was co-founded by Kimberly Crenshaw, key expounder of critical race theory. The forum's editor-in-chief is Chris Lehman, former editor-in-chief for The Baffler and The New Republic, and author of The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Chris Lehman. Thank you, Janine. Really happy to be here. And thanks for the great introduction. Well, as I understand it, while not denying that critical race theory or what's presented as that is under attack, the forum isn't defining itself as a defense, but but more a user of what is, after all, a tool. Is that right? Absolutely, uh, Janine. Early on in the bad faith attack from the right, it became very clear you know, when you're locked in a battle with someone who's lying and shamelessly lying, you know, the conventional incremental fact-checking approach is doomed to fail for the reasons you cited in, in your introduction. So the forum is meant to be a freestanding proof of concept for people curious about what critical race theory actually is and does. We're not engaged in the doomed effort to call out the defamations and bad faith attacks of Rufo and, and company. Rather, we're here to insist what is more desperately clear than ever, that the race crisis and the democracy crisis are one and the same. For entirely too long in American political history, um, you know, um, political elites on all sides have regarded racial justice as something you can negotiate away in, in provisional political calculations. We're in this situation now because of that mindset, and the forum is very much dedicated to demonstrating in real time the disastrous consequences of those kind of calculations. It's interesting. With some people, it's as if when we center race, we're no longer talking about them. 
You know, it's like uh, exactly. It's like, yeah. oh, you're going to talk about accents, but I don't have an accent. You know, <laughs> I know right? you're talking to a Midwesterner. <laughs> exactly. I'm neutral. I'm neutral. Exactly. Well, I appreciate very much that the form is not sort of pitching in as a defense of critical race theory, particularly given that the people behind this assault have made clear they don't know or care what critical race theory is. It's a vehicle for them to attack, you know, black people and teachers and history and multiracial democracy in general. So I'm kind of wondering, what is a sense of the range of pieces and perspectives that you're looking to include? And what are you thinking of as a kind of cohering principle for the content? Well, as I was saying, I think the cohering principle is that, you know, we cannot downplay or disregard the white nationalist assault on multiracial democracy, and we have to document it everywhere it turns up. So this week on the forum, we have a great piece by Rafia Zakaria, author of Against White Feminism, on the, the bombshell leak of the draft opinion by Joseph Alito to strike down Roe v. Wade explicitly saying, you know, it has been a racial project to control women's bodies going back even before the founding of the United States, but certainly throughout the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow, that has been front and center. So that's just a timely example. Um, Last week, we had a piece about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and how it also reflects what is at bottom a colonialist mindset, wealth conquering literally the terms by which we engage in public discourse and sort of leaving a scorched earth behind. Well, so it's showing the range of things that you may not have associated with this sort of toolbox of ideas, but in fact, it's useful to apply this prism too. Yes, absolutely. Again, the, the race crisis and the democracy crisis are inseparable. And I think to talk responsibly about the fate of our democracy entails always acknowledging the the anti-democratic forces in our history and in our political world today are committed first and foremost to sowing racial division and to, as you indicated earlier, propound this you know, mythic idea of a real America that excludes certain people largely on, on the basis of skin color, but also gender. Kim Crenshaw also founded intersectionality, which is the analytical tool that insists that you can't separate out race and gender oppression and other forms of oppression. They are all part of one movement, as we're seeing at this moment when the initial attack on CRT in our schools has now metamorphosed into the Don't Say Gay bills, the attack on trans Americans. It is all of a piece, and we have to respond as one movement saying that this is all an attack on our democracy. The Supreme Court opinion is a clarion call, in my view, that we have to organize at the most fundamental levels to stop these unaccountable elite institutions that have spun out of democratic control. Well, and just on that note, that has been uh, where people see, I think, a huge void on the part of corporate media in the failure to see these things as a coherent front, as a coherent campaign. It, It was maddening to see 
how many media just kind of picked up the script they were handed and presented the attack on critical race theory, not as an explicit disinformation effort that's aimed at the same dusty racist goals, you know, but presented it as a controversy sprung up organically from the soil of school boards around the country. And that's media telling the wrong story and really fundamentally misrepresenting the scale of things that are going on. And I think when a lot of people complain to FAIR, certainly, about media, what they're looking for is a sense of urgency, of a sense that the chips are down, you know, and that journalists need to pick a side. And what we're getting instead from elite media is, well, you know, some people think black people are inferior, but it, and then other people call those people racists. And why don't both sides just kind of calm down? Right, right. And as they say on the Sunday shows, we have to leave it there for now. Right? <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, the, that whole mindset is disastrous in conditions of democratic peril and the conditions we're living through now. We have a major party that is now weaponized by white nationalist ideology and undertook a coup on January 6th of 2021. And yeah, our media the mainstream media industrial complex is sleepwalking through this moment, in part because they have institutional investments mm-hmm. in treating politics as a game. It is not a game. This is not a drill. <laughs> right. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment for anyone who cares about the democratic future of this country. And, yeah, our, our media cannot afford to just reflexively both sides something as fundamental as the right to know what our history is and the right to learn and the right to, yes, pursue actual racial equity in our institutions because it is long past time to do so. All right. Well, then into the breach, as I say, come come <laughs> new spaces like, like the forum. We'll look out for it. Thank you so much, Janine. I really appreciate it. All right. We've been speaking with Chris Lehman, editor-in-chief at the new news and commentary site, The Forum. Thanks again, Chris, for joining us on Counterspin. Sure thing. Anytime. Counterspin listeners understand that the news media situation in this country works against our democratic aspirations. There are so many problems crying out for open, inclusive conversation in which those with the most power don't get the biggest megaphone, leaving the vast majority outside of power to try and shout into the dominant noise or try to find the space to talk around it. It's no surprise in that context, conversations about how to make a different media system, differently structured, differently accountable, are among the hardest to have. But while corporate media can give the impression that, like it or not, billionaires controlling the flow of information is the only way things can go, that, like a lot of the elite narrative on political possibility, is simply untrue. One project proving that is an effort to replenish and reimagine local news, which listeners know has suffered dramatically in years of media consolidation, in this case in New Jersey. 
The New Jersey Civic Information Consortium is a first-in-the-nation project using public funding to support more informed communities. Early movers behind the project were the group Free Press, and we're joined now by Free Press Senior Director of Journalism Policy, Mike Rispoli. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Mike Rispoli. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, the New Jersey Civic Information Consortium was established in 2018, but the press resources on the website go back to 2016. What is it that happened then? In 2016, uh, New Jersey was looking to sell some old broadcast public media licenses that it held. And in the selling of those state assets, the state received $332 million. And Free Press Action was doing some work in New Jersey at the time. We were organizing in communities, trying to find ways to uh, help partner, have communities partner with local newsrooms, but also hold local newsrooms accountable. And so we were doing organizing around the state and talking to people about the future of local news in New Jersey. And at that time, and you know, there are set to receive this windfall from the sale of these TV licenses. And so we thought, hey, what would, what would it look like if some of that money coming into the state was reinvested back into communities to address the growing gaps in, in news coverage and community information needs? And so with that, we, we began the idea of what became the consortium, but, but ran a statewide grassroots campaign called the Civic Info Bill campaign. And, and, that, and that work began in, in 2017. Well, I just want to address just that point, because often when you hear about a new project that addresses an old problem, sometimes the vibe is, we've invented something over here. We've created something. Now everybody line up and see if you can get access to this new thing we created. But what you're talking about is a very different model. It's it's rooted. It it grew. The consortium grew from a lot of relationship building, didn't it? It did. And and I think what's really interesting, especially in the case of New Jersey, so New Jersey receives essentially all of its broadcast media from out of state. It's sandwiched between the New York and Philadelphia media markets. And so the state always had a a real like long and rich history of hyper local print media. And obviously we we all have seen and experience that have been impacted by the loss of local news, especially over the past 20 years. And many communities have never been well served, even in the quote, good old days of journalism, or many communities who were never, never really well served by local media. Right. And so when we were looking at this windfall that the state was going to receive, we thought, how could we use public funding to not just invest into like local news or, or to quote like save journalism, but instead of what if we use public funding and public money to help rebuild and really transform what local media looks like in the state? How do we leverage public funding to invest in projects that are filling in gaps left by the commercial media market? And public media and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, when that was created, you know, one of its missions was to fill in gaps by the right. left by the commercial media market. Right. Those gaps are huge now. They're so much bigger. And especially in a case like New Jersey. And so we thought, you know, this is a this is a reimagining of how public funds can be used to strengthen local news and information. 
but it's also a new way of doing it because the Pacific Information Consortium, it's an independent nonprofit that receives public funds and then invests that into new and innovative local news and information projects, especially in communities that have been historically underserved, which include BIPOC communities, uh, immigrant, poor, rural communities, among the least well-served in the state of New Jersey. And so how are we using public funds to address those really long-standing information needs, as well as the communities who have been impacted by the recent loss of local news in the state? And so it's kind of building on this precedent of public media, but also doing it in a much more kind of innovative way that uses state funds to address a community's information needs and really kind of centering community in that process as opposed to centering the journalism industry or corporate media. Well, I like the description. I was struck by the description of the consortium on njcivicinfo.org that says that it, quote, funds initiatives to benefit the state's civic life and meet the evolving information needs of New Jersey's communities, close quote. It doesn't say, as you've just noted, it doesn't say newspapers or give money to websites, you know, and and that really, um, you know, we always talk about the fact that a contribution of a news source isn't just whether the reporters are smart or whether the visuals are high tech, you know, that it has to do with its structure, with who supports it and who it's accountable to. And I, and I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that we're talking about information needs. And of course, that includes journalism and, and media outlets, but that's not the definition. Absolutely. And I think that what we knew when we began this campaign was that if this was a campaign to to bail out the journalism industry, that wasn't a thing that people were going to get behind. That was a thing that we don't even think lawmakers were going to get behind. But instead, really what we talked about was not the woes of one specific industry, but instead we talked about the impact on communities when local news and information is not accessible. And we know from data when local media is deficient or disappears altogether, it has significant consequences on civic participation. Fewer people vote, fewer people volunteer, fewer people run for public office, fewer federal dollars go to districts where there's no local media presence. Government corruption increases, government spending increases. So there are all these really profound effects on civic participation and the overall health of our communities when local media isn't meeting people's needs. And so we wanted to to make the campaign as well as the bill really centered around that as opposed to giving government handouts to corporate media who contributed so much to the mess that we are in right now and that we're trying to figure out our way out of. Absolutely. I I liked a comment from Columbia Journalism Review back in 2018. Heather Chaplin said that what's so interesting about what was then the New Jersey Civic Information Bill was that it seems to acknowledge in a very concrete way that journalism is not just its own island floating out in the middle of the ocean somewhere, but rather is just one part of a larger interconnected system that supports democratic life. Well, let me ask you, Mike Rispoli, finally to bring us up to this week, because there's new news just from recently. What's the latest? Sure. So just this past week, the... 
New Jersey Civic Information Consortium, which I'm uh, grateful to be also be a board member of, announced uh, nearly a million dollars in grants to projects all around the state, to all different types of projects, projects that train community members in the skills of journalism and how to report on their communities, grants to high schools to train student journalists, grants to research institutions to look at community information needs of the state, uh, grants to civil society. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people who maybe don't come from a journalism background, but do things like voter engagement or voter outreach and giving money towards civic engagement projects. Again, like with a particular emphasis on communities that have been the least well-served by New Jersey media. And what's really exciting is that this round of grants that just went out, we also gave out uh, half a million dollars last year. Uh, so the consortium has really, even though the bill passed in 2018, it's really only been doing grant making for the past uh, two years or so. But we're already starting to see the impact of how public dollars can not just help support these really interesting projects, but it also help our grant recipients to attract philanthropic dollars as well. And so we're actually beginning to see more philanthropy going into uh, local news projects in New Jersey as a result of state funds being used to kind of help get these projects off the ground. And I've been fortunate to be involved in this work, like you said, since you know 2016 or 2017, and you know, always had an idea of the types of projects that the consortium could support. But you know, looking at the list of grantees now and the really good critical work that they're doing makes me feel like really, really proud of of this initiative. And like you mentioned at the top, it's really like a first of its kind in the nation. But we're also beginning to see other states look to the New Jersey model and take up similar legislation where they are. So. What we're really hopeful for is that not only will the consortium have an impact with its grant making in New Jersey, but hopefully also inspire other states and maybe even Congress to look at how public funding can support local news and information. We've been speaking with Mike Rispoli, Senior Director of Journalism Policy at Free Press. You can learn more about the New Jersey Civic Information Consortium on their site, njcivicinfo.org. Thank you so much, Mike Rispoli, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to learn about our newsletter, Extra, and to sign up for our Action Alert Network. It's also the place to show support for the show if you are so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.